Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text INTRO to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. This is Day 37. Today we will be reading Part 4, Necessary Counsels Concerning Temptations That Occur Frequently in the Christian Life, Chapter 13, pages 405 to 412 in the Ascension edition of the book. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we are covering today. So, strangely enough, or perhaps not strangely enough, while we're talking about temptations, he will now turn, he'll pivot, and start talking about consolations. I think a lot of us would be like, wait a second, aren't consolations a completely different thing than temptations? Why are these in this part? But he's going to focus on consolations in a slightly different way than other people will focus on consolations. So you've probably heard consolation compared to desolation, and uh, we're largely indebted to St. Ignatius of Loyola when we think about those themes. But here, uh, St. Francis de Sales is going to say there are going to be times in your spiritual life where you're going to feel good about the fact that you have a spiritual life. But even in the midst of that experience, you have to be just a little bit careful or a little bit cautious because those consolations can become a temptation for what? Attachment or for idolatry or for, yeah, just losing sight of the real goal of your spiritual life. So he's going to give us some encouragement as to how we can incorporate consolations into our spiritual life without making them the whole of it. So then let's say a prayer and start in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly. For the praise and glory of thy name, amen. Chapter 13, On Spiritual and Sensible Consolations and How We Ought to Receive Them God continually maintains the existence of this great world in the midst of all its endless cycles and changes, each day always passing over into night, spring into summer, summer into autumn, autumn into winter, and winter again into spring. Seldom does one day perfectly resemble another. Some are cloudy, others rainy. Some dry, others windy. Such variety greatly contributes to the beauty of the universe. The same is also true of man, who, as the ancients said, is a kind of microcosm, a small reflection of the universe, for he never remains long in the same state. His life flows upon the earth like the waters, perpetually floating, rising, and falling, carried about by various movements, sometimes lifting him up by hope, while at other times casting him down by fear, sometimes inclining him to the right hand by consolation, while at other times turning him to the left by affliction. And not one of his days, nor even one of his hours, is like any other in every respect. All this is a great warning to us. Amid this great and unequal gathering of occurrences, we should strive diligently to preserve an even heart. And although all things about us turn and change, we should remain constantly immovable, forever looking, aspiring, and aiming toward God. Let the ship take whatever course it will. Let it sail east, west, north, or south, driven along by whatsoever wind. Nonetheless, its compass always points toward the beautiful North Star. 
Let everything turn upside down, not only around us, but even within us. Let our soul be filled with sorrow or with joy, with sweetness or bitterness, with peace or trouble, with light or darkness, with temptation or repose, with pleasure or disgust, with dryness or tenderness. Let the sun scorch us or the dew refresh us. Ah, nonetheless, let the needle of our heart, our spirit, our superior will, which is our compass, ceaselessly point to the love of God, its creator and savior. In short, it's only and sovereign good. And the words of St. Paul, quote, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, end quote, Romans 14, 8. And who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing indeed, neither tribulation nor distress, nor death nor life, nor present sorrow, nor fear of future accidents, nor the artifices of evil spirits, nor the heights of consolations, nor the depths of afflictions, nor tenderness, nor dryness. None of this ought ever to separate us from this holy charity which is rooted in Jesus Christ. See Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. This absolute resolution never to forsake God nor to abandon His sweet love serves as a counterweight to our souls, helping them to retain a holy equilibrium amid the inequality of this life's vicissitudes. For, just as bees, when surprised by heavy winds in the fields, take up little pebbles to help themselves to retain their balance in the air and avoid being so easily carried away by the wind, so to our soul, having by a firm resolution strongly embraced the precious love of God, continues with constancy in the midst of the changing circumstances and vicissitudes of consolations and afflictions, whether spiritual or temporal, exterior or interior. However, beyond this general observation, some particular rules are needed regarding this topic. 1. Therefore, I say that devotion does not always consist in sensible sweetness, delight, consolation, or tenderness of heart which moves us to sighs and tears and lead us to experience a kind of agreeable and appealing satisfaction in spiritual exercises. No, my dear Philothea, all this is not identical with devotion, for there are many souls who experience such tender feelings and consolations while nonetheless not ceasing to be very vicious and consequently have no true love of God, much less any true devotion. While he was trying to hunt down and kill David, who was fleeing before him in the wilderness of En Gedi, Saul entered alone into a cavern where David and his people lay concealed. David, who on this occasion might have killed him a thousand times over, spared his life and would not even go so far as to cause Saul to experience fear. However, allowing him to go out quietly, he afterwards called after Saul in order to demonstrate his own innocence and to convince him that he had been at his mercy. Now, upon hearing this, was there anything that Saul did not do in order to show that his heart had softened towards David? He called him his son. He wept aloud. He praised him. He acknowledged his goodness. He prayed to God for him. He foretold his future greatness, and he commended his own family to his care. What greater show of sweetness and tenderness of heart could have been made? Nevertheless, his heart was not changed, for he did not cease to persecute David as cruelly as before. See 1 Samuel 24. In like manner, there are some persons who, upon considering the goodness of God and the passion of the Savior, feel great emotions in their heart, leading them to pour forth ardent sighs, tears, prayers, and acts of thanksgiving. Thus, one would think their hearts possessed an extraordinary degree of devotion. However, when it is put to the test, we see that, just as the passing showers of a hot summer fall in great drops upon the earth without, however, sinking into it, thereby serving for nothing but to produce mushrooms, so too these tears and emotions falling on a vicious heart without, however, penetrating it, are altogether unprofitable. For despite all this apparent devotion, these poor souls will not part with the slightest penny of the ill-gotten riches they possess, 
nor renounce even one of their perverse affections, nor suffer the least inconvenience in the service of the Savior, over whose sufferings they wept so many tears. The pious emotions that they express were no better than spiritual mushrooms. Not only are such things not true devotion, but very often they are great deceptions of the enemy, who uses such false consolations as a kind of entertainment for their souls, leading them to rest contented with them and preventing them from searching any further after true and solid devotion, which consists in a constant, resolute, prompt, and active will to do whatever we know will be pleasing to God. A child will weep tenderly when he sees his mother touched with a lancet for bloodletting. But if this same mother should at the same time ask him to give her the apple that he has in his hand, he will refuse to give it up. Such is true, for the most part, as regards the nature of our tender devotions. When contemplating the stroke of the lance that pierced the heart of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we weep bitterly. Ah, Philothea, it is very right to weep over the death and bitter passion of our blessed Redeemer. However, why then do we not give him the apple that we have in our hands, which he so earnestly asks for, namely, our heart, the only apple of love that our dear Savior requires of us? Why do we not resign to him all those little affections, delights, and pleasures that he desires to pluck out of our hands, but cannot, because they are sugar plums for which we feel greater fondness than we do for his heavenly grace? Ah, these are the friendships of little children, tender indeed, but weak, capricious, and without results. Devotion does not consist in these emotions and sensible affections, which sometimes proceed from a soft nature, susceptible to any impression we have a mind to give it, though they also at times come from the enemy, who stirs up our imaginations only to delude us. 2. Nonetheless, these tender and loving emotions are sometimes good and profitable, for they excite the soul's appetite, strengthen the spirit, and add a holy light-hearted cheerfulness to devotion's own promptness, thereby making our actions lovely and agreeable, even externally. This relish for the things of God is what made David cry out, quote, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. End quote. Psalm 119.103 Surely the least consolation of devotion that we receive is in every respect preferable to the greatest of the world's delights. The milk of the heavenly spouse is sweeter to the soul than the wine of the most delicious pleasures of earth. See Song of Solomon 1-2. Once we taste it, we judge all other consolations no better than gall and wormwood. For just as they who keep the verb shatik in their mouth experience such excessive sweetness that they neither feel hunger nor thirst, so too they to whom God has given this heavenly manna of spiritual sweetness and consolation can neither desire nor relish the consolations of the world, at least so far as to take delight in them and fix their affections on them. They are our little foretastes of those immortal delights which God gives to the souls that seek Him. They are the sweets that He gives to His little children to allure them. They are the refreshing waters wherewith He strengthens them. And they are sometimes the first fruits of eternal felicities. It is said that Alexander the Great, sailing upon the open seas, discovered Arabia Felix by perceiving the fragrant odors that the wind carried to him from that land, thereby raising the spirits of both himself and his companions. So too, while we also pass our days on the sea of mortal life, we often receive sweet scents and delights that give us a foretaste of the delights of the heavenly country towards which we stretch and aspire. 3. However, you will perhaps ask me, since there are sensible consolations that are good and come from God, and others that are unprofitable, dangerous, and even pernicious, proceeding either from nature or from the enemy, how shall I be able to distinguish them from each other and know which are evil or unprofitable and which are good? It is a general teaching, my dear Philothea, as regards the affections and passions of our souls, that we must judge them by their fruits. See Matthew 7.16. 
Our hearts are the trees, the affections and passions are the branches, and their works or deeds are the fruits. A heart is good when it has good affections and passions, and affections and passions are good when they produce in us good effects and holy actions. If these sweet feelings, tender sentiments, and consolations make us humbler, more patient, yielding, charitable, and compassionate towards our neighbors, more fervent in mortifying our immoderate passions and evil inclinations, more constant in our religious exercises, more pliant and submissive to those whom we ought to obey, and sincerer and more upright in our lives, then surely, Philothea, they proceed from God. However, if the only sweetness found in such consolations is felt for ourselves, if they make us curious, harsh, quarrelsome, impatient, obstinate, haughty, presumptuous, and rigorous towards our neighbor, if we already imagine ourselves to be little saints in scorn remaining subject to direction or correction, then beyond all doubt these are false and pernicious consolations, for a good tree can only bring forth good fruit. See Matthew 7.17. 4. Whenever we experience any of these sweet feelings and consolations, one, we must greatly humble ourselves before God and beware of saying, because we have experienced such things, quote, oh, how good am I, end quote. No, Philothea, these consolations are not proofs of our goodness, for, as I have already said, devotion does not consist in these sorts of feelings. Rather, let us say, quote, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him, end quote. Lamentations 3.25. He who has sugar in his mouth cannot say that his mouth is sweet, but rather that the sugar is sweet. So too, even though the spiritual sweetness is excellent, and even though God who gives it is most good, nonetheless it does not follow that he who receives it is good. 2. Let us acknowledge that we are merely little children who must be fed upon milk, and that these sugar plums are given to us because our tender and feeble spirit stands in need of attractions and allurements to entice us to the love of God. 3. But afterwards, in general and ordinary cases, let us humbly accept these graces and favors and esteem them very highly, not so much on their own account, but rather because they have been placed into our hearts by the hand of God, as a mother does when, in order to please her child more greatly, she places sugar plums into his mouth with her own hand, one by one. If the child has understanding, he will set a greater value on the tenderness and caresses of his mother than on the sweetness of the sugar plums. Thus, Philothea, it is a great thing to have these sweet gifts from God, but the reason for their sweetness is for us to know that God, with his loving and paternal hand, puts them, as it were, into our mouth, our heart, our soul, our spirit. 4. Having thus received them humbly, let us use them carefully, in accord with the intention of him who gives them. And to what end, do you think, does God give us these sweet consolations, to make us sweet toward everyone and to arouse us to love him? The mother gives sugar plums to her child so that he may give her a kiss. Therefore, let us kiss our blessed Savior who gives us these sweet things. Now, what is it to kiss him? In short, to obey him, to keep his commandments, to do his will, and to follow his desires. In brief, to embrace him with a tender obedience and fidelity. Therefore, whenever we receive any spiritual consolation, we must on that very day be more diligent in doing good and in humbling ourselves. 5. Besides all this, we must from time to time renounce these sweet and tender consolations, withdrawing our heart from them, and protesting that even though we humbly accept them and love them, for God sends them and they arouse us to love for him, nonetheless, these are not what we seek, but rather God himself and his holy love, not the consolations, but the consoler, not their sweetness, but the sweet savior, not their tenderness, but him who is the delight of heaven and earth. In this way, we should dispose ourselves to persevere in the holy love of God, even if through our whole life we were never to experience any consolation, ever ready to say, as well upon Calvary as upon Tabor, Lord, it is well that we are here with you. 
Matthew 17.4, whether upon your cross or in your glory. 6. To conclude, I admonish you that if you should happen to experience any great abundance of such consolations, tenderness, tears, and sweet solace, you discuss them openly and honestly with your spiritual director, so that you may learn how to retain an even heart while experiencing them, for it is written, quote, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you. End quote. Proverbs 25, 16. In this section, then, we've seen a few different themes emerge. So it's fascinating. He'll begin with this acknowledgement that uh, variety is the spice of life. He doesn't say exactly that, but, well, you can rely on later authors to add that precise terminology. But variety is the spice of life in the sense that variety in the spiritual life gives us occasion to grow. And that's going to involve both consolation and desolation. So just like a lot of people will appreciate the opportunity to live in a temperate climate where they can experience all four seasons, uh, so too we're going to expect to experience you know, different seasons of our spiritual lives. And the point of that is so that we can appreciate the particular beauty of each, but ultimately to appreciate the particular beauty of the God who creates in this varied way, or the God who is so glorious, so excellent, that his glory and excellence cannot be spoken adequately by one human experience, but can only be adequately communicated through a variety of different human experiences. So, Father Jacob Bertrand, as we consider the variety of our Christian experiences, what are some ways in which we can think about that variety well and fruitfully? Yeah, the variety, as you said, is, is something that redounds to God's glory and God's sort of magnificence. But our participation in it also, I think, reveals who we are as humans, that we that we're made to like experience things in different ways and different with our senses and 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 different circumstances. And and that we're not like robots, you know, we're not automatrons. That's how you pronounce that word, I think. Um we're not just made to sort of be like rote kind of like virtue bots. You know, we're made to be human beings. And in being human, it means that we encounter God and creation. Um, and dare we say, without getting too like new age psychological, like we encounter ourselves in ways that are different and varied. And and that's just like what life is. That's just what life is. So too, we should expect that that's what the spiritual life is is you know i can think of my own life more often than not the spiritual life is is a challenge and a difficulty and you know like we talked about on previous episodes kind of a grind of just like getting there and, and showing up and trusting that in showing up god makes good on his promises but there are other times when it's great it's really excellent it's really beautiful i mean i guess it's all beautiful but you know my sort of affective response is is in accord with that um the what i guess sort of summarize what i've been saying uh, a wise priest and Dominican friar once said that we have to be willing to ride the wave of the like the spiritual life that like we're just along for the ride in many ways whether there's consolation or desolation or good or bad or easy or difficult and in a sense it kind of is what it is and and that's when we have to kind of take it for what it is yeah there there is one particular line that kind of jumped out at me from this chapter chapter 13 where he says Nonetheless, after having described consolations, he says, nonetheless, these are not what we seek, but rather God himself and his holy love, not the consolations, but the consoler, not their sweetness, but the sweet savior, not their tenderness, but him who is the delight of heaven and earth. So I think, yeah, just thinking about in terms of the variety of life, we're thinking about it in terms of the passing of the seasons, which is one of the images that he uses. We're given an opportunity to love 
you know, in this time, setting, circumstance. But then aspects of this opportunity will pass away. Because, you know, while we find many lovely things, sometimes we hold on to them as if they were the only thing or as if they were the whole thing. So parts of our human experience are always changing so that, you know, our gaze can be reoriented to the God who is the source of them all and the end of them all. So we're seeking, you know, whether it be in consolation or desolation, to cultivate a healthy detachment from one or the other because all we want at the end of the day is God and we want him with constancy. And I think we have to be okay with the fact that this is going to continue to be a struggle, like you've said. It's not going to be something that we master at the age of whatever, you know, 43, and then afterwards it's just a, a kind of downhill glide, you know, as we, as we wend our way to heaven. It's not like that. You know, it's going to continue to be a struggle because different things are going to present themselves to us as potential attachments, uh, you know, as we progress through life. Maybe when we're young, it's certain things like possessions or like intensity of love. And when we're, you know, middle-aged, it's like financial security or a kind of honor or esteem, you know, given to us by others. Uh, Maybe when we're older, it's like comfort or companionship. You know, we're going to have all of these desires, which can always pose the threat of a certain attachment. But in the midst of them, God is always kind of gesturing to us. He's always indicating to us that he's present behind them, but also in and through them, offering us himself. And so we need to be willing to do the work of paying attention, right? And acknowledging when we are attached so that we can ask God for the grace to detach. So yeah, maybe thinking about more about this theme of attachment and detachment and then what it means to cultivate true devotion and how we can get that confused with maybe sensible devotion. What are your thoughts about doing this work of detachment on a daily basis? Yeah, I think all of it has involves our affect, our emotions, like how we feel in prayer. And that can, again, here, we want to like follow the virtuous, the mean, right? The middle. We don't want to say that our feelings are the the determiner of where we are in the spiritual life. Like I went and I prayed and like that felt great. And that was, you know, I'm feeling awesome. That's not the case. We also don't want to say that like feelings have no role to play and, and that we should be wholly sort of like stoic in our prayer. No, that's not the case either because our feelings are part of who we are, but they aren't always like the determiner of where we are. And, and what I mean by that is kind of what Father Gregory was getting at is that the, the sort of my kind of emotional affective response to a time in prayer, to a time spent with God, is not indicative of me being devout. It's not indicative of me not being devout. It's also not indicative of me being attached or detached. So we, in all of this, we have to recognize that there's like, that, that God goes beyond those those sort of things. God goes beyond our sort of sensible devotion. Are we really feeling it today or not? He's he's bigger than that and he's more than that. And and again, like with temptation, as we were talking about before, he we ought not be like constrained by that. You know, God gives himself in every circumstance, even if, you know, we might kind of feel like, ah, I don't know what's going on here. Um, he does and he's and he's there. And this is where this idea of detachment comes at, where we're less attached to our response to things and just more attached to Christ. Yeah. And I think that the hope is that as we progress in the spiritual life, as God gives us to progress in the spiritual life, that our approach to prayer is just simple, uh, you know, like modest, uncomplicated. We're happy to kind of slip in and slip out of prayer as God gives us to pray. And, you know, if consolations come, God be praised. So be it. I know in my own case, I experience life as difficult in certain ways, and that kind of weighs on me. So I can be sad, I can be tired, I can be frustrated. 
And when consolation comes, I find it very, what, reanimating? I find it to reanimate me or I find it to be very, what, consoling? I guess that's the, that's the reason we call it consolation. Um, I find it to be very delightful and wonderful. And that for me is, yeah, it gives me a kind of encouragement to pick up where I left off and to continue on down the road of life. It gives me a kind of temporary reprieve from what I would otherwise experience as the kind of drudgery or the grind that we described previously. So that for me can be, yeah, just a great source of sustenance. And I don't want to set that aside on account of the fact that it can pose a potential source of attachment because God's giving it and I should receive it with simplicity and I should acknowledge it as from him and for him, use it and move on. I think that's the idea is that we want to like cultivate these virtuous dispositions, which you described in the last part, which help us to engage both with consolation or desolation in a way that foregrounds faith and love, the essential features of a devout life so that we, you know, we hold fast to God and grow in our relationship with him. Yeah. And maybe just as a, a last theme for this particular chapter, he's going to say that whether a consolation is good or bad, whether it's, you know, leading to God or potentially misleading away from him, we're going to have to make that judgment on the basis of their fruits, you know? Do they come from God? Do they not come from God? Well, what kind of activity do they give rise to? So I don't know if you're, um, you know, in your experience of talking to, you know, people who come to you for spiritual counsel, how do you troubleshoot these types of problems with them? I think first it's, or really not first, the, the, the bit of advice that I give is, you know, like is what's happening, what you're considering in accord with like the truth? with who Christ is, what we know that Christ desires and promises us, um, what the church teaches from Christ's promises and, 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 you know, from the scriptures is, is this in accord with, with the truth? And if it is, is it something you desire, you know, or is it, is it something that's not? And if it's not, then don't chase after it. If it is, then chase after it. And that's, that's, I guess, like you see the fruits of that in, in sort of your own, we could say like discernment of what things are in your own consideration, your own prudential decision-making, you know, is, is this a way of like pursuing the devout life drawing me closer to God? Or is it, you know, am I more anxious? Am I more sad? Am I scared? Like these kind of things. Well then like maybe consider the means that you're using those, those sort of things. So again, we have to look at like the whole picture of things. Where does this piece, how does this piece fit into our faith, into our life with Christ? And then at the end of this chapter, I don't know if you caught it on the reading, but there's like a list of four. And then within the fourth point, there's a list of six. And that list of six kind of gives you an approach to receiving and using consolations. And the basic thing, if we were just to kind of reduce it down to quick bullet points, which I think is helpful enough, is that we humble ourselves, we recognize our need, we accept what is given in simplicity, we use those consolations carefully, we occasionally renounce them, lest we become overly attached, and then we talk it through with the spiritual director or confident uh, whom we're comfortable sharing spiritual things with. So that was the, the list of six there that you heard in the reading, although it was spaced out because all of those explanations were interspersed. But I think it gives us a nice little conclusion to what we've been discussing to this point, namely that we should humble ourselves before our God who gives every good and perfect gift, recognize our need at times for consolation uh, and even for desolation if we are too attached, uh, to accept what is given in simplicity, cognizant of the fact that he knows better and that it's for us to say yes, it's not for us to say what, <laughs> and then to use those consolations carefully while occasionally renouncing them, and then always being open lest we get trapped inside of our own heads um, and kind of lose our bearings in the spiritual life. So that's for you just by way of summary. And that is it for today. So thanks so much for tuning in. 
Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To download the reading plan and support the production of the podcast, please visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics. And again, we're always interested in getting to know the digital community, so please join us at our next Godsplaining event, whether it be a pilgrimage, a retreat, or something else. Details and applications can be found at godsplaining.org. Know of our prayers for you, please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Thank you.